Everything's falling into place. I'm right where I should be. We grow out of this world in exactly the same way that the apples grow on the apple tree. The tides of life are led me here. What's the meaning of the universe? What's the meaning of a flea? It's just there. That's it. And your own meaning is that you're there. And that's why I'm not scared. The destiny of the species is unfolding with the logic of a dream. I know the answer will appear. Please. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uncomplication Podcast, the podcast that reminds you, you can change your mind. So here's the thing. I do drugs. And that's hard to openly admit, especially in a world where you can lose your job or get locked up in some places for smoking pot. But I smoke pot when the weather is nice or I need to change my outlook. And when I'm out in nature, I love to eat mushrooms or take a drop of acid with my friends. The benefit for me is huge. These substances have absolutely changed my life, and I am so grateful for the experiences and revelations that they have given me over the years. They have helped me cope with life in a modern world. They've been a door to the wonder and beauty that has inspired my art and living. And they have brought me closer to the people I love and even helped me embrace the people I don't. So why is it so hard to open up and to talk about this subject? Well, my guest today is going to shine his light on that very question and reveal the ways this denial and hypocrisy around drugs in our culture has created side effects more damaging than the drugs themselves. Dr. Rob Colbert is a practicing psychotherapist. Every day he is invited into the minds and lives of his patients, where he sees many common threads in people young and old grappling with a system that is not always kind to the human spirit. And for many, it can lead to experimentation or escape into altered states of consciousness. In Dr. Rob's view, this is not a sign of mental illness, but a natural reaction to the conditions of life. And the real damage happens when people are siloed and misinformed about the substances they use. Dr. Rob is also currently participating in the FDA-designated MDMA-assisted therapy study, using MDMA, also known as ecstasy, in the treatment of patients with PTSD, with amazing results so far. This might sound new and novel, but actually, before the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, drugs like MDMA, LSD, and many others were in widespread use and under critical study by professionals in the field of mental health. They were widely heralded as the breakthrough in our ability to understand and treat patients dealing with stress or repressed trauma, or even to cope with dying. So how did we get here? Drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Uh, If you do them, you're bad. Because drugs are bad. Well, Dr. Rob is one of many in a field of people who have been fighting for our rights as adults to use these substances. 
not just for the treatment of illness, but for the betterment of well people everywhere. I will admit, I came into this conversation with a wide range of biases that I had to critically think about. In my personal experience, psychedelics have been really valuable, but I would not have ascribed any value to heroin or what we typically think of as hard drugs, drugs of abuse, or even a lot of prescription medications with a track record of harm for many people. Well, my safe little conception of good drug, bad drug got blown up pretty quickly in this episode, as I grappled with the concept that drugs are not good or bad in and of themselves. They are different for everyone, but they are out there. And as a culture, we can choose to wage war on them preferentially and push the whole problem underground where the harm is magnified, or we can foster critique and critical thinking about our cultural response to these substances and the opportunity to model safe cultures of use around them so that kids and adults are not sneaking off to do drugs behind closed doors, but can openly ask questions, get good information, and act wisely as they exercise their ability to change their minds. So whatever your stance is on drugs, I think this episode is going to stretch your brain and maybe even challenge you a bit. I know it did for me, but I was left knowing this. The best thing that I can do is to be open and honest and to share my experience and knowledge with my friends, my kids, and with you. So now let's get into it with Dr. Rob Colbert. Enjoy. So maybe we could actually begin towards the beginning of your story. I would love to know what first attracted you to this field of mental health and um, therapy and psychedelics. Oh, that's big. It goes back a long, long way. My biological father committed suicide when I was two years old. Um, I'm told that he suffered from... Uh, addiction to alcohol and cocaine, I think were his favorite mix, but, uh, you know, getting, you know, super drunk and then violent at sometimes. And so was threatening. My mom left him, ended up uh, in the tragedy of him killing himself. And so grew up with a single mom for the first few years of life. I got a lot of memories from that. And then uh, she met a wonderful man, um, my dad, he adopted me and uh, he's, uh, you know, still living about 10 minutes away. But so I grew up with that awareness of like suicide as like a mental health issue. Uh, talked about like addictions and stuff. It was never packaged as if he had a disease. It was more just like he probably shouldn't have been doing alcohol and cocaine, <laughs> you know. But so I didn't, I didn't, you know, that that kind of like was the realm. And so I did, you know, I came up through the dare and all of that. I was also evangelical uh, Christian for most of my youth. So drugs were just super taboo and it was just nothing, nowhere at all. Um, as I left the church at 15, there was kind of an awakening to kind of like, hey, folks have been lied to or, you know, like I had been lied to. So I wanted to figure out more truth. Started exploring with, you know, cannabis. Um, and then, you know, alcohol, of course, as a young adult. And then at 19, I think, was the first time I did MDMA. And so I had been out of the church for about four years and I was kind of like, hey, you know, they, they really shut down a lot of this stuff out of fear. Here I did this drug that, that supposedly was supposed to be super scary, taking ice cream scoops out of my head or something, right? Like all the fear. And I, I, I get this, you know, uh, rush of all these different things, the emotional connectedness with my friends. And I look at one of my buddies and I'm just like, man, this is amazing. Why don't they use this for couples therapy? 
And he just laughed. He's like, oh, yeah, man, they used to before it was made illegal. I was like, wait, what? Mind blown. They used drugs for therapy. So uh, that was kind of like the first little sliver. And I don't think that that ever went away. You know, it's uh, it's amazing. You know, 20 years later now, I'm uh, a co-therapist, a sub-investigator on the MAPS MDMA study, right? So actually getting to work with folks uh, in a clinical trial uh, addressing symptoms of PTSD, you know, severe stuff. And so, um, you know, lots of twists and turns within that. Uh, but I think that in my exploration when I was young, I lucked out that gentleman um, he actually uh, introduced me to harm reduction. I volunteered with Dance Safe uh, from like 2000 to 2002 with uh, him and a, a crew of friends and stuff. Mostly it was like, you know, we were young. It was getting cheap concert tickets or free tickets. You know, you go in work a couple hours at a booth and then you go party, right? But uh, learned a lot about harm reduction and probably survived, you know, my, my reckless youth with derived exploration because of that. But also really came through this critical lens of like, well, Everybody was really scared about LSD and I did it several times and I don't, I am not clinically insane. There's nothing in my spine or, you know, like all the myth. And it's funny because like as a, as a kid, you know, I'd be like, oh, you know, someday I want to like, this has got to be legal and we could use it as therapy. And people would be like, yeah, whatever kid, you don't know nothing. It's never going to happen. And so, you know, that pursuit has stuck with. And so it's kind of, uh, yeah, I hope that kind of uh, reveals a little bit about. Yeah, absolutely. And um, similarly, I had fairly early introductions to some of these substances and same thing, uh, very beneficial for me. And I was shocked that the world didn't know about these things. And then I was even more shocked to learn that the world did know about these things, but they had been intentionally, you know, put back in Pandora's box. Um, Yeah, so it sounds like you were... Uh, coming into the field, actually, the the profession during that that real dark age between, I would say, the, I don't know, it seems like everything kind of went into the closet around the, the mid-1970s and didn't start really cracking that door open until maybe the late 90s. What has been your experience as your profession has collectively reawakened to some of these lost pieces of knowledge? I actually hold a critical view that like the profession only did so well of being able to maintain. There were definitely some that remained in a vanguard, you know, Strassman, um, uh, Rick Doblin and uh, the folks at MAPS, you know, Rick Ingrassi, uh, Charles Grove. I mean, it, the, the list is long of folks who kind of like stayed in it as far as the field of psychotherapy. But what really sustained through those times was the underground recreational user. Right. It was it was the use for celebration. It was the use in raves or parties or the, the underground therapy networks. Right. So it, it, it kind of like sustained there. I, I'm a big advocate that what helped maintain it is that the usefulness of some of these substances, LSD, MDMA in the in the uh, dance rave community uh, for building relationships and for for uh, helping like cope with the the drama of the dare culture or you know like all of these things it was a it was a response you know reaganomics was not working out well for poor folks so what do we do well we sought out drugs to change our consciousness and feel better you know and so that was kind of the response to it so it's not just you know psychedelic drugs it was all over the board but um 
yeah, that piece of like in those years, it was a split. And so the racism behind it, you know, mm. like powder cocaine getting less uh, punishment than crack cocaine or, you know, all of those things was all about uh, systemic oppression mm-hmm. of poor folks and poor folks of color. Right. Uh, and, and so it was it was further marginalizing um, these demographics of people that it, it was kind of just like picking up that torch and running with it coming out of the, you know, it's been there for a long time, hundreds of years. So, but this was a reification within the uh, the system. And do you know about Dr. Carl Hart's new book? I don't think so. Oh, you're going to love this one. How Adults Do Drugs. Huh. Yeah, it's wonderful. He's also been going out and doing a bunch of podcasts and things like this. And, and this is huge. I love it. And I think it's just within the introduction. It's like in the first page or two, he's coming out as a, as a recreational drug user and just says, mm-hmm. yeah, he's heroin. Wow. It goes big too. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you know, I, I smoke a little pot on the weekends. It's like, no, no. Fucking dope, man. I, I like smoking dope. I like uh, getting some heroin and, you know, uh, when I have big talks or this or that, I, I, I'll get high the, the night before. And I find that I wake up the next day refreshed, ready, focused, clear. Wow. Doing the TED Talks. So, yeah, no, it's inspiring. And he talks about this. He's like, you know, in all of the research that he did, um, you know, going back uh, decades with drug users, you know, kind of based on the assumption of like, oh, these, these people are bad people or don't contribute in life or whatever. And finding that 90% of them, 85, 90% are functional adults. They got kids, they take care of their jobs, they pay their bills, you know? So he's like, oh, it's a myth. The drugs cause all these trouble. He's like, no, if we actually need to normalize folks talking about their, their real drug use, like adults saying like, no, actually, Fuck, cocaine? Yeah, every couple of months or something. Yeah, I know there's like an event. Me and some buddies get together. Maybe we get some cocaine and we have a good time. But you know what? None of us the next week fail to go to work. None of us fail to like do our regular responsibilities or, you know, like none of that, right? Or or whatever it is, right? So anyway, it's it's super inspiring. Yeah, that is interesting. And that's quite a, a twist even. I, I've, I'm obviously very open-minded uh, I have not heard of high-functioning adults openly admitting to using heroin before uh, public speaking events. However, I think it it signals that major shift that appears to be happening as we decriminalize these things and discover how they have been integrated into cultures in the past. Uh, I know that you also are a practicing therapists. So you also deal with the other side, um, uh, people coping with life in the world today. And some of those uh, issues include addiction. And I mean, you mentioned your, your, your biological father and some of his struggles sounded like they were directly related to some substances as well. So maybe taking a step back so we can take a few steps further. What do you see out there in the world today? Is there a general um, set of circumstances that you find a lot of patients are in? Well, so, you know, just to begin with, like, as far as addiction, I don't, I don't consider addiction a disease. I don't think it's located. It's not a brain thing. It's not this or that. I actually think of addiction as a response. And, you know, it may not be the most useful response, but it's a response to something and it accomplishes something. Like the, the truth about humans, as far back as we can look, We've used substances to alter our consciousness. You know, water, that's a big one. Food, I get hangry. I have to eat 
to alter my consciousness. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just no no fun to talk to, right? So at those levels, it's just real simple, right? And so all of these different things, you know, like a lot of, uh, I, work, I, I do a lot of work with young folks, like young adults. And so within that, sometimes I don't find out that they've explored LSD or, you know, like some of these bigger ones, you know, uh, made, uh, what do they call it? Pharmawaska, which is kind of like a, a homebrew of ayahuasca kind of thing, an MAOI inhibitor with some DMT. But, you know, it's kind of like sometimes they come in and it's like, oh, wow, well, so this is this is what you did. And so it's kind of like uh, finding out what that is a response to, you know, sometimes it's curiosity, discovery, sometimes it's a response to boredom, response to authority, response to all these things. Um, but it's like, uh, those typically those experiences don't lead to somebody being like oh and you know what i'm going to do this the rest of the week and i'm not going to class no more and you know it's more kind of like that kind of shook the ground and i'm, I'm going to go back to school because that feels normal mm, yeah <laughs> but you know um so is there any commonality in what folks are responding to yes uh recognizing that humans are emotional beings and that's just a quality that's kind of inherent in our nature the system hasn't done well to deal with that and so how kiddos are brought up in school it's a real dump truck method of like you sit in your chair we've got we're going to dump all this material your way so don't mess around while you're sitting over there because we got to hit you and so anybody that doesn't fit in that they want to like sort out or drug or you know um special education kind of like get them out of the system and into the the school to prison pipeline kind of thing mm. um but it comes from this place of like the school recognizes these individuals that are too much right mm. uh too much physical activity too much mental activity too much social activity right <laughs> all of those things are so human the system is like calling that it's too much, but it's like, no, the system's jacked. It's not actually engaging people in the right way. So it's not that the people are the problem, it's the mm. system. And that, this is just really, this This is just, uh, yeah, across the whole scene, right? And so I think that, you know, a lot of young folks are told that, you know, their sensitivities to the world, their, sometimes their emotional sensitivities are too much to handle. They're like, we don't get it. Why do you feel so big? Mm. Right. And us adults are like, we don't know how to handle it. We're, we've been trying to cap that and bottle it down and get to the rat race. Dang, kid, you come in and you're you're like connected to the planet and you're like ready to weep and cry for dolphins that you've never even met. Like what, kid? You know, so it, it, it becomes like this overwhelm to the adults. And our response is just to like shut it down. Mm. Uh, chemical forms of behavior management. Right. Like the, the, the we say like oh kids shouldn't do drugs yet we give them pharmaceutical drugs all the time so it's such a contradiction so that's another piece is that the system also lies on so many fronts and so these kiddos coming up are continually lied to don't get me started on easter bunny and santa claus but all <laughs> these other fronts of like oh drugs are bad but here take your pills it's like just a constant bombardment of those contradictions and lies and so yeah these are the commonalities that I see. And do the symptoms look different? Yeah. Typically in young men, they don't have any emotional expression. So it looks like anger or aggression, mm. those kind of things. But that's just like the range of emotions that they're enculturated with. Young women, it looks a little bit different. You know, it's, and, you know, it's all across the scene. So that's kind of a lot in a nutshell. No, that, that's, that's amazing. And I mean, it tracks with my own experience growing up. And now I have two kids, nine and five, and my daughter is just such a free spirit, 
little artist and it pains me to see her being put into the same system that I had to fight and combat for so long. I, I wonder in your experience with the, the ages that you um, talk to, it sounds like it doesn't take long before that uh, being put in a system that doesn't jive with the human uh, organism and spirit comes crashing down. So how long do you think it takes before they're, they're questing for these other opportunities that are outside of the prescribed cultural tracks? Yeah. I think that some of these little star beings hit conception running with this. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I think that some kind of, yeah, they have that um, question authority piece very early in life. I think I, I myself had it, right? Like I'm trying to remember back. I remember when I was a young kiddo, uh, I had to have been three, maybe four. I was chewing fingernails and my my grandpa's girlfriend uh, had told me, she said, oh, you shouldn't chew your fingernails because a hand will grow out of your stomach. Even at three, I had it was a critical thinker. And I was like, boy, I don't know if that's possible. That sounds just so far out there that I don't think it would take place. But I think I'm going to call bullshit and I'm going to keep eating my fingernails just because I want to find out if a hand grows out of my stomach. Wow, I don't yeah. think that'd be too bad. Right. You know, but it's like just that thing of just like being willing to call bullshit at that age. And it's stupid. I still chew my nails, but that's not the point. It's just like uh, the, that, con you know, confrontation with authority, I think, is healthy. And that's what's funny about the system, too, is that's, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, oppositional defiant or you know they got they got these different terms for it right or you know when it comes to like drugs and stuff there's like oh medication non-compliant or something right like they always are like packaging oh you're uh uh um i forget all the different things medicine phobic or this or that but they, they always label that anti-authoritarian piece because they, they want to further marginalize it or kind of like you know but anyway i feel like i've gotten off track now. no no i i think we're on an awesome track uh because I think it, it's not hard to look backwards at uh, what we call, you know, primitive cultures, but more the types of situations that humans evolved over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to be these uh, family units and then tribal units. And they always had rites and ceremony and these rites of passage, which in our culture are, if they're not purely absent, they're being created you know, in a counterculture raves or what, whatever that might be. So what are your feelings on maybe the failure of our culture to provide any kind of guideposts for young humans being oh, yeah. enculturated? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like the way we folks are enculturated coming up, we don't have these signposts or these, uh, these ways to mark the transition and some cultures still hold on to it. Right. So Latinx communities, you know, having like uh, uh, the different celebrations of quinceaneras and, you know, all the things or Jewish communities with the bar mitzvahs and, you know, like there, there are uh, cultures that, that we do uh, that still have these things. But I think that as like a Western uh, culture, it's very dispersed and a lot of us don't grow up with any sense of ancestry or uh, lineage, right? A lot of that's left out, missed, 
we, uh, you know, like white culture uh, largely gets packaged in as just white. And so we don't even become responsible for knowing our lineage, right? And so just there, we've kind of removed ourselves from the past and traditions and ceremonies and how folks did it before. And so anyway, we can bring that back, right? Connecting with whatever it is. And, you know, for myself, I've got some Roma gypsy lineage, but, you know, you look at me genetically, it's just like this blob all over Europe, you know, I got <laughs> all over the place so but within that it's like an exploration of all these things and kind of learning what it is because kids are hungry for it i was hungry for it and we do create it right and like um it's 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 uh important it's like paramount for us as adults to offer that back down the line because that is a part it's an important part of the technologies of being human our mm -hmm. rites of passage right transitions transitions are inherently human because we do track time right and so uh it's that generational transition and then offering these things that can help people mark what that means right and so thresholds and transitions are um marked by certain things that if you're not exposed to them you don't you don't have any I don't know it some of these things like are, are, are super important like when i think about uh transitions is some is like a reflection on the past uh projection into the future but as we move through it also leads with like a dying of old ways that you also say like oh okay this is you know the way i i viewed the world before is going to be different after right and so just engaging that in a meaningful purposeful way throughout our young lives teach us how to do that as adults. And then it just translates into like, oh, now here that transition is a new relationship or mm -hmm. the ending of a relationship, grieving the dying of someone who's close to us, right? We engage it in the same ways. Our worldview is different on the front end and it's gonna be different on the back end, but it's that process of moving through it that is, is the human experience. And so it's kind of this like, yeah, this teaching that is just missing right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it is like some of these ways that people have reclaimed it, right? Like I think of like smoking pot for the first time in high school, that was like a rite of passage. And it was this cracking of that being lied to, mm -hmm. right? Like they told me like, oh, <laughs> all, all the different myths, <laughs> right? And so the cracking of that truth was a rite of passage. And I was like, yeah, now I see past some of that bullshit of being a child. Right. But so, yeah, it was the haphazard way. And, you know, like it was done in this, you know, non ceremonious and non respected ways. But we had to create it for ourselves and we had to do it in our youth. And, and it's a bummer that we kind of we didn't have more ceremonious experiences. Right. Like, uh, you know, I, I think psilocybin would have been an amazing experience for some of those. Right. To actually sit around with a group of elders, maybe camping around a fire or something like that, and drink a little bit of mushroom tea, kind of trip out and be like, yeah, here's the patterns in nature. Have you ever seen a tree breathe? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, like that, that would just be, it would have been so much more meaningful than like sneaking off with my buddy uh, to like smoke pot in his car behind Boyd Lake for the time. Right. Big whoop. Totally. <laughs> no. So anyway. Um, yeah. I, it, it's interesting because with a culture of just say no and zero tolerance and all that kind of stuff, which I think we both grew up in uh, the dare years. What I think myself and a lot of friends found was in those early cannabis experiences, it was like we had cracked through to a different 
way of experiencing reality and it felt like no one else had any clue it was there. I remember just being astounded that I had such a fixed view of what the world was and and that was largely in part because, you know, the culture of TV and and parents doing their jobs and that whole world and and you kind of figure out your role to play in it and then you have this experience where yeah, you see trees breathing, you see you know, a, a forest and the, the death being the new uh, fuel for the things that are growing. And you just see this new awareness. And I remember thinking, because I was, you know, I had no uh, access to information back in the, you know, late 90s or whatever, to know that I wasn't just losing my mind or going crazy. Because that's what I kind of thought. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought like, holy crap, this whole dimension is out there. And it took a lot of searching to find authors like Joseph Campbell and Alan Watts and uh, McKenna and other people where I was like, okay, wait a minute, this isn't me going crazy. This is like the core of what humans have known and, and, and guarded and passed on in these ceremonies forever. So in your mind, what what do you think it would take to, well, first of all, have enough of the population aware of that information to make it central again and then to actually have the ability for kids to be um, raised in a way that, that that is not taboo, it's not behind closed doors, it's not excommunicable. Uh, yeah, what, what, do you, what are maybe some hopeful futures that you might envision? It's, it's huge because it's like so ingrained in our culture, right? And that's that's... There's some really big shifts, right? The Puritan values of, of trying to cleanse your consciousness is uh, just kind of got really got to be questioned and critiqued, because that's kind of that's that's what's used to then position bad drug versus good drug, right? And so it, it's just it's a it's a false dichotomy anyway, right? Like it generates that, and so getting out from under that and and really like recognizing that it's not about uh, whether or not we should give kids drugs. It's whether or not we should all have the freedom to control our own consciousness, right? It's just a very uh, libertarian thing. Just like, well, who are you to say what I do up here? And it's wild that we give so much right to a system that has failed, right? Like typically if you like, we're like, oh, hey, we don't know what to do with this thing. And they're like, oh, there's people that want to alter their mind and we're worried that they may not be safe. Like here, let's let's see if the system can be trust to like do this in a responsible way. And then those folks do it and then they just lock them up or they demonize them or they, you know, tear up families, they do all this thing. So there's this track record of the system not handling this well. So why we keep giving this over to them and being like, oh, well, okay. Maybe if we call it addiction, maybe they'll do better with it. No, they haven't, right? Maybe if we call it this, they'll do better with it. Oh, no, they haven't, right? And so getting over that and getting past this piece of it's like, oh, using substances is a sign of mental illness. It's not. We actually need to change that too to think of this as like, it's also possible that this is a sign of mental wellness, you know, and that, and that folks actually engaging these things with an intention and purpose in their lives transforms how we use them. It's no longer a response to sickness, but it's a response to vibrancy and health and discovery, right? Spending some time out in the woods with some friends in an altered state 
to then go out and grow and do things and apply it to the community, right? And so we need to get out from under this piece because it's like, yeah, uh, with the the MAPS uh, MDMA study, right? So in phase three, uh, the clinical trials are moving forward. It's great, you know, folks with PTSD are seeing some recovery. There should be some literature coming out, should be published uh, pretty soon. That's wonderful, right? And so it helps build that evidence. But according to the FDA mo model as well, once the adult studies are done, the FDA expects the sponsor to then start testing in younger demographics. Hmm. And so they break that down. You know, there's different categories. But so it's interesting, you know, like when they talk about like the, the 12 to 18, people are kind of like, okay, well, maybe we could see you giving MDMA to some 12 to 18 year olds, but we want to take it real slow. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, what about seven to 11? Oh no, how could we do that? Like what, Why, how would you give a, a methylene dioxymethamphetamine uh, to kiddos? And it's like, oh, but wait a second. It's very common right now for us to prescribe methamphetamine as young as five and six years old to kids. Hmm. And people got no problem doing that so that they'll sit still in their classroom. Right. And so they're, they're like everybody freaking out about giving MDMA to kiddos. It's kind of like, well, is that such a big deal? I mean, we don't know what the effects might be because we're, we're trying to help someone work through trauma. So we don't know if a kiddo's got enough of a track record of trauma to like know the baggage that they're carrying. Right. Do they can they unpack those bags or those bags even packed yet? We don't know. So that's why the research and the studies are actually really needed. We do need to explore it because it would be wild if you found out a kiddo had been molested or raped at a very young age. But, you know, within two to three years, you could invite in an MDMA session to actually unpack this terrible thing that happened to them so that they don't carry that burden for the next phase of life to then, oh, now they're over there. Now they're an adult over 18. Now maybe we can give them MDMA to see if it's over. It's like, wait, what? So we got to do this research, but um, it is really wild how like quickly people get twisted mm -hmm. up on that angle. It's like, wait, the FDA expects it to be tested on kids. It's like, yeah. And it was just the status quo, actually. It's not that, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, in in a sense, it almost feels like a race between the huge global challenges we face and our ability to transform as a culture quickly enough to to deal with them. Um, mm. And I and I think consciousness expansion is one of the planet's ways mm. for uh, allowing us to see different solutions or different modes of operation that could potentially uh, change our behavior such that we could save the planet, save ourselves. But it's that race between, you know, will it happen fast enough? But I, I have to say, I have been really encouraged and even a little surprised, uh, you know, having grown up with such a zero tolerance around drugs to, you know, I think it was last year, um, or I guess it was two years ago because COVID was all of last year. But um I remember sitting at the Lyric Cinema and watching Fantastic Fungi with a whole room full of adults that were, you know, professionals and uh, kind of that square mainstream culture. But they were all sitting in this movie theater, like listening intently to this expose on how beneficial these substances are. Um, and, you know, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, I think was a like a New York Times bestseller. So it is, even if it's a small step forward, all of a sudden there is dialogue. And I think even your own studies are an indication that um, there is a, a movement in that direction. 
Uh, which which kind of brings me to another topic that I'm I'm really curious about. When you look at the world today, and um, you know decriminalization of a lot of these substances in places like Denver and DC, and then how the cannabis industry kind of started with this medicinal approach, and you had to have like an ID card, it had to be medicinal, but eventually opened up to be recreational. Do you see some of these substances, MDMA, psilocybin? potentially um, being on a similar track. Yeah, it, I, I would imagine at some level it has to. How soon, I don't know. But like, let's really talk about this in a, in a critical way, okay? <clears throat> when we talk about shifting the culture, right? Like, we just need to model what these different substances, what their culture of use looks like. That's what needs to be represented, right? Like what does the culture of people who use psilocybin look like, right? So there at the Lyric, you know, you're getting a little view of that. This is what the culture of um, mycologists and people that are in a fungus look like. They walk around in the woods, they make funny jokes, pronounce things weird, no <laughs> little laugh. Right. That and then so then within their culture of use, they also talk about how important it is to identify your species over and over again, identify your species, identify your species, whether you're looking for psychedelics or edibles, whatever. Right. So their culture of use is in that. So then that even goes further into storage or or sharing or, you know, all of the things they have a culture of use around that. Right. So it's just normalizing that they know what mushrooms not to eat, what mushrooms not to suggest others eat. Right. So they just take care of each other. <clears throat> what's funny is we have so many examples in our culture right now of cultures of use that have very clear boundaries, right? Bleach. We have a culture of use around bleach huh. that you don't put it in places that are accessible to kiddos. We put safety lock caps on it, right? We, we train kids, don't drink bleach. As soon as we can get them to understand that, don't drink it, right? Uh, do we outlaw it? No, it's, it's very dangerous, right? Uh, so, but we have a culture of use around that, right? It's the same thing with Tylenol. You know, Tylenol was heralded as one of the best analgesics, you know, like getting rid of pain, all the, all the things. And actually I could go to the 7-Eleven and buy enough Tylenol to kill my whole family, yeah. right? Like several kiddos and a couple adults in one of those bottles that you can get at 7-Eleven of Tylenol. But we have this culture of use around it that we just say, oh, well, but it's useful for this set of things. So as long as there's appropriate precautions, we let adults, even, you know, with that one, it's over the counter, kiddos can go buy it, right? But can be extremely dangerous when not used properly. So it's just about changing this culture of use, right? It's like changing our culture of use around pot. It's it's kind of come up that, yeah, no, with the, the medical... Uh, model, you know, kind of came through more people were kind of opening up to it. And then the recreational piece, it's like, then, yeah, top tier adults that were like engineers or lawyers or doctors or all these folks, then I can say like, oh, yeah, no, and I smoke a little pot too. And the culture of use is like, oh, and I'm a surgeon, so I don't smoke pot anywhere near one of my shifts that I'm going to work with people. But when I go on a little vacation or I'm hanging out in the mountains going skiing, I smoke some pot, right? It's, it's just a culture of use that when it's appropriate, when it's not. And so that's really what we need to focus on is normalizing it. And I think that's what Carl Hart is doing. He's like, mm. you know, there are folks out there, like I said, they can go buy some cocaine do a little bit of it, and then they don't end up like going out fiending for it, right? It doesn't cause this problem in their life. So we need to talk about what that culture looks like. 
we, we have to give the, the, the signposts of how folks determine like, oh, you know what, this past weekend, I went a little hard with the cocaine and so I should probably dial it back, right? Like, okay, well, how do folks navigate that? When it happens siloed and, and underground, nobody gets to know. Mm -hmm. They have to go to sources like bluelight.org to figure out how to use drugs or Arrowhead or you know these other places. So the community still helps out. But it's, yeah, it's still this underground piece. And so we really have to change that culture of use, right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because when you talk about a culture of use, there's that physical expression of what that looks like. Uh, you can hear a mycologist talk about, you know, different names for strains and species. You can see what a functioning adult that uses cannabis looks like. But what you can't put into words is the experience. And I think that's what a lot of people who don't have that experience previously are fearful of. And when we talk mm -hmm. about things like, um, you know, psilocybin, LSD, uh, DMT, some of those more um, dissociative or having the potential to really change the lens that you look at life through, um, mm. what is the matching cultural response to help people deal with the inner peace? Yeah. So it's interesting, as you say that, I realize that it's so quick for people who have used substances in these ways, like these different mind altering substances to first express or relate to others who like haven't done it or is not as familiar uh, through the lens of the aesthetic. And it's the least valuable lens right like talking about trees breathing or the patterns that you see on wall that's the least useful and the least exciting piece right so I, I what i would say is that we if we kind of like adjust into how we deliver this to go deeper first right and to be like oh well actually i had some really close bonding times with my male friends and us men don't get enough of that in this culture so psilocybin was great that night and we enjoyed some hallucinations in the stars right but like lead with that deepness right and, and actually you know go with it there or like oh i had this epiphany about a, being a parent to my kiddos and like I, I i think i do so well at this and then there's this one piece of play oh i gotta play more with my kiddos i take it too serious and psilocybin did that right but we gotta lead with those instead of the, the aesthetic but i think that that that's yeah and it's funny too because as you're speaking i'm, I'm thinking about how that ownership of our minds has been so institutional for so long that places like churches or schools are the most fearful to see people leave that flock and maybe find something newer or bigger. So that's where a lot of resistance comes from. How do you talk to not just an individual who might be struggling with, with you know, being a good parent and, and could get these insights? How do you talk to an institution to say, look, you know, you have a whole group of people we have this alternate, um, you know, option for expansion and, and mental health and maybe even getting to some deeper understandings about your religion. But what does it take to then influence the, the institutions to let down their guard? Uh, so resistance is futile. <laughs> resistance is futile. And it's just like... Um, what I would suggest to a couple in therapy who they're just like having a really hard time, uh, maybe they're fighting or angry at each other a lot. It's con it's conflicted relationship. Begin with honor. 
don't try and share your point of view. Don't try and lead with like, yo, drugs are good. Try and honor the institution and honor the things that they have done, right? Like church communities and things, valuing their sense of community, valuing how they, they provide uh, information and, and distribute information to communities, right? Like those are, those are valuable things. It's the bummer that some of that, uh, what's communicated is bullshit about drugs. So we'll get to talk to that part, but let's start first by honoring these qualities that they have, right? Because that's the, that's the crack in how you open someone up. Institutions, people, whatever. If you start by honoring the sacredness of them, the divine within, beginning there, boy, you just cracked everything open and it became possible. And so within this, like it's remembering that, yeah, these institutions, these are also set up with the divine curiosity from humans. What could we do with law enforcement? Well, we hoped it would do all sorts of good things. It does those. And there's a sliver of these bad things that it also does, right? So we have to continue to critique the institution, but it's still headed toward human divinity, right? Like these, these better values of things, but um, it's the same thing with, uh, you know, critiquing other institutions and stuff like that. But um, that's the first step, right? Like just not to point fingers, not to uh, guilt or shame, right? Because that's big for the patriarchy. The patriarchy wants to first be like, oh, well, you're doing it wrong and you're guilty for is it's like, well, no, no, we got to cut that shit out, right? Like the, the patriarchal responses just have to like be limited. So leading with our heart, leading with the, 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 the felt sense of connecting with someone else's or the institution's divinity, their sacredness. That's, I think that's a great place to start, you know? Um, and, and, and the time for martyrs is over, right? Like we, we I, I appreciated a, a podcast that I was hearing with Carl Hart, but he was kind of going towards this piece of like, yeah, I would get arrested for this thing and this or that. And I'm like, well, no, that's actually why this fizzled out in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. The system showed that arrests are not the best way to make the statement, right? Like the, the freedom riders kind of carried that, but the steam fizzled out once the system figured out how to co-opt the statements about it, right? And so then the martyr piece just didn't become useful anymore. You go to uh, jail for drugs and they're like, yeah, you went to jail for drugs. <laughs> so it, it's, it, we got to lead with this other thing. And so we can't resist that way. You can't, you can't say like, oh, this system's wrong for demonizing my drugs. So I'm going to resist it by doing drugs. It's like, well, we kind of have to just do the other thing right? Like you do the alternative. And I think that that's kind of how this paradigm shift is happening. It's just saying like, oh, well, the alternative to drugs being bad is like, oh, drugs are useful in a therapeutic context. Like, oh, okay. If we have to say it that way in order to get to use drugs, well, fuck it. We'll do it that way and we'll get to use drugs. But so it's doing that alternative and not actually resisting the system. The system shows up and says, oh, you're going to do that. We have to go through the FDA. Okay, we'll go through the FDA. Oh, you have to go through the DEA. Okay, we'll go through that. But you just keep doing the alternative and it just keeps building enough evidence that all of a sudden, right, like a few years ago, the FDA was like, wow, they actually really have something here. This is actually so useful. We need to expand this access. Mm. We need to open this up so more people can use it, right? They're actually talking about giving more people the drugs that they claim are illegal and not useful medically. (laughs) So it's just by like not actually resisting head on, but just doing the alternative. And then the the institutions, they'll catch up, but that's not a responsibility, right? Like they got to do that work on their own. And the good news is, is it's also 
these archaic systems are also being regenerated by younger groups, mm -hmm. right? Like folks like us who grew up with the bullshit of dare are going like, actually, I became more curious about LSD seeing that little case when they opened it up. And I was like, what? That little tab of paper would do that crazy stuff? Hmm. <laughs> you know, but we're, 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 we're out from under that contradiction. And now we're getting into the places of power. We're entering into, you know, yeah, going to the legislature. You know, like these are the places that it's needed. Yeah. And and it's so cool because it, it seems like in the 60s, that was really the tactical blunder was that the people like Timothy Leary and, and many others that were really on to this uh, potential with psychedelics, that their approach to the system was an outright battle and a battle for the hearts and minds of the youth. And it, and it was because of that combativeness at the outset that the system reacted so strongly and just, you know, fought literally a war on drugs. And so it seems like this time around, A, those people that were maybe young on the front lines in the 60s are now the, as you say, you know, they're in places of power, they're in the institutions, they have that, that experience and knowledge. And so it's almost like um, you have to change the system from the inside using yeah. the actual apparatus of government and these institutions to, over time, wake them up and uh, not fight them, but lead them. And so it's really mm -hmm. cool. That's, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm so inspired um, from the bit that I know about you and, and your colleagues and the people that you interact with is that, you know, you're not you're not a hippie. You're not out you know, touring the country in a, in a bus, you know, giving out LSD tablets as far as I know, but, but you are in the same vein trying to wake up a, a world that desperately needs a change of perspective, um, but doing that through clinical studies and therapy. And so I, I just, I've come to appreciate that because a lot of people still to this day, when they think about LSD, they have an image of, you know, the 1960s. And as you and I know, I mean, that substance can be so powerful for professionals and creative people trying to solve challenges. And so I guess that's kind of a, a good little segue. How do you see um, some of these substances being applied, not by, you know, therapy, but for the, you know, for the betterment of well people? You know, how are people able to incorporate these in their in their daily existence and what are some of the, the benefits? Oh, I think that that is definitely unique to individuals, right? Um, because really, in the grand scheme of things, it's funny in this work uh, over the years, my my perspective of drugs that people do just gets bigger and bigger, you know, and then it's like, I just, I find out stuff that people do that I'm just like, Oh, wow. Okay. And then, so why do you use that? Oh, okay. Right. And so, I mean, it's interesting. One of the, one of the most interesting kind of like subsets of users are, um, I don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> um, I was going to say huffers. Huffers uh, that, that, you know, will get a bag of paint or a bag of, you know, a cleaner or whatever and be huffing that bag and just talking to them about, you know, their use and, 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 and what the perceived benefits are, right? Like uh, somebody snorting detergent, powder detergent and getting high, like they get high. 
and that is the perceived benefit even though it makes their nose bleed almost immediately as this looks terrible on the outside on the inside they, they 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 perceive some benefit whether that's like a little bit of release from the regular world the kick of endorphins that the body must kick in trying to kick that soap out of its body i don't know but it's just like it's interesting right so i don't i but what we need to get out from under is the judgment of like, oh, well, people could use it for good or bad. And so we're going to judge that. It's kind of like, well, no, I don't know. Uh, how do we place that? Uh, so on that on that note, I mean, do you feel that all substances are created equally? Or do you feel that there should still be some form of education on you know, where you can push that line too far and now you've got a meth addiction or you're huffing paint in your car while smoking cigarettes and it blows up. I have a friend who works in the ER. A guy literally came in with all of his skin. You know, that there is a line. Um, So I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So within that, like a lot of these things too, the horror stories that you hear come from folks doing drugs in silos. You know, uh, a friend years ago who um, was doing whippets, nitrous oxide, driving home from work, passed out, hit a tree, ended up in a coma for two weeks, right? Was just came down simply to he was just 18 years old and nobody had really told him like, oh, you might actually pass out with nitrous. Like, yeah, if you take little bits, you get the wah-wahs, it's kind of goofy, but you might lose consciousness. (laughs) And that's just because he never got that. He learned the real hard way, right? And so I think that, yeah, education, there, there's, uh, it would be absolutely amazing if we did provide actual education like this. Like at some point in kindergarten, uh, I assume within the first few years, we get taught about tra- uh, cleaning chemicals, warning signs of poisons, how to identify it, right? Like somebody teaches us that. So if we had those similar labels on drugs, no problem right? It's ridiculous that we have a second amendment and people are all gung-ho about having a right to bear arms and that people should have the right to do that. Well, that's fine. Why in school then don't we actually provide some education about firearms and just say, yeah, no, this is something you may come across because people have the right to carry it. So you might someday end up in a vehicle that's not yours and oh, there's a sidearm. Should you touch it, kids? No, but we don't have that education. We actually say like, oh, you have a right to bear arms, but you got to go train yourself. It's bullshit right? Like we need driver's ed in schools that needs to be returned. So because you're trusting someone to operate a vehicle, they need to be trained how to do it, right? If you're going to trust people to be around drugs, they need to be trained how to do it. It's just simple, but no, the education wouldn't be bad. It's this fear that, oh, if we tell somebody about drugs, they're going to use drugs. Bullshit. If we don't tell them about it, they're going to use drugs. (laughs) So it's just like, people are going to use drugs. Just Let's just leave it at that. And then, so yeah. I have a, we have some friends and they're very uh, open-minded and they had, uh, I don't know where they got it, but I, it stuck with me. They told their kids at a certain age. Um, and I don't know how you feel about these divisions, but uh, they basically said there's, there's three types of drugs. There's the ones that I know you'll do. And I hope that you do those safely that's alcohol, that's cannabis, that's, you know, nicotine, those types of things. There's the ones that I hope you don't do because they can lead to uh, health problems. That's, you know, methamphetamines. I would have put heroin in that bucket, but apparently there's, you know, other ways to integrate it. 
And then there's the ones that I hope you do and that I hope we can talk about and share in that experience together. And those are, in my mind, kind of the classic psychedelics, you know, mushrooms, LSD, that type of thing. But but I like that approach of saying, hey, you know, there's all this stuff out there. Some of it I just know you're going to do. Be safe. You know, other stuff, you know, read the warning label or get some good information before you go there. And then these other ones are really powerful. And I hope that that becomes part of our experience together. That's where my mind went when you talked about, you know, education. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I do appreciate that stance, and I, and I think it's a wonderful sentiment to offer to our, offer to our kids, and, and it's okay, but it's also still built on false dichotomies, right? Because, like, as you said that, and it was, like, the first category, category you put alcohol up there, and I'm like, no, actually, that, for me, exists in category two. I probably should have never been introduced to Jack Daniels and Coke. Uh, it was a terrible part of my young years was adjusting to getting blacked out drunk, but being functional and no, uh, that, there was just no, 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 no benefit in that, you know? So it's like, they, we still are kind of skirting around this thing of like, Oh, good drug, bad drug. And it's like, no, no, that's all it's uh, there. Uh, Gabor Mate uh, often says this thing of like um, the difference between a drug and a poison is the dose. And it, it is right, you know, and, and, and to some extent, there are, of course, things that were kind of clearly like, no, no, don't do that one, <laughs> you know, cyanide or some poison or shit, right, you know, um, but then it also is like, who is to determine, right, like, we, we were finding out that there might be some genetic factors that could lead someone to understand, like, oh, actually, how your body responds to cannabis is way outside of the norm, right? And so there is, is the cannabis-induced psychosis is a thing, and it's a very small fraction of folks who respond to cannabis this way, but there's evidence of it, right? And so just being able to say like, oh, we can't say like, oh, well, cannabis might be okay for you, might not. It's like, no, 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 we need full education, full informed consent is what we talk about it in the research, right? Like you're not allowed to do work or research with uh, human subjects without giving them full informed consent. And so if we're humans moving into the world and it's just a baseline that we use substances to alter our consciousness, we just need to build a culture that kind of helps deliver a full informed consent, right? Like, hey, don't drink bleach. and Mushrooms are mostly safe. There's some that'll hurt you. There's some that are going to make things look really weird. So when you do that, pro tip, sit down. (laughs) Yeah. Um, How are you on time? I know we were going to shoot for an hour. Do you have a few more minutes? It looks like I do have another meeting starting here in a few. Last last lines of questions here. We've talked a lot about that outward expression of these things and how they affect culture I'm really curious for you, what has been the benefit of these substances to you? Can you describe in the best terms you can, like experientially, what is the potential? What is the value just personal to you? Hmm. Hmm. First, like I love the the term psychedelic, meaning mind manifesting, mind revealing. Part of what it uh, revealed to me early on was the divine within humanity Right. So not just within myself, like finding it in myself was really cool because, we, you know, when I was in the church at a younger age, we used to talk about like Jesus being in your heart or something like that. But like really finding the divine within came after I had this discovery through things like LSD of discovering the divine outside of me. Right. And really being like, oh, shit. Um, So 
that uh, is, is real big. I also like to talk about that piece of like psychedelic, um, just really mind manifesting. Well, all drugs that we use, all substances that we use are manifesting some type of mind, right? Like Ritalin, well, for some people, it reveals this focused sense of mind. <laughs> for others, it's a real speedy experience, right? But it, it reveals a, a state of mind. So it is a psychedelic too, but, um, so for me, just kind of breaking down some of those those barriers of just being like, oh, okay. So seeing art or color, you know, like all of the things in, in, in new ways was a big break because then, yeah, it allowed the dissociation of all these other ideas, like how to intervene therapy and drugs or, you know, like, uh, whatever, responsible use of addiction, you know, figure it out. Um, but so for me personally, like that was the real big piece was just being exposed to that because it developed a curiosity then. Right. So uh, for myself, going growing up, going to like school, uh, I was chatty, <laughs> talked a lot. That was trouble for school. You used to say, hey, you need to be quiet. You need to learn your multiplication tables. I was like, screw that. I don't need to know uh, six times eight. I still don't know what that is. And that's fine. I was right not to learn it because I wanted to be chatty. And the reason is, is well, OK, I'm, I'm actually good at therapy. Right. Like I go and talk with folks. It goes real well, actually. I, 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 so. Um, just kind of learning those things of like, oh, just because I don't fit into the system, that's okay. How do I become more of myself and allow this divinity to come out in ways that are useful, right? Like going and doing a career in construction would not be useful for a chatty Kathy like myself. <laughs> you know, going and being a therapist was definitely a better application of that, right? And so um, uh, that definitely coming from psychedelics and stuff. I also... Uh, have done underground therapy, right? And so in between 2010, 2012, did underground, mostly MDMA therapy. There's some DMT therapy as well. And actually revealed, some of it revealed the power of these substances because I was taken back to, like I said, my biological father uh, was violent. I don't, my mom said that she, uh, witnessed him being abusive to me at about six months old. And so she left at that time. So she left at six months. We were on the run for about a year and a half after that before he killed himself. What was revealed in my MDMA was that he had actually been violent to me before then. So within a few weeks of birth, some of the first times being left alone with this man, he didn't know how to deal with a crying loud baby. He wanted me to be quiet. He wanted to get back to his business, maybe drinking or doing blow, I don't know. But his response was to push me down, to silence me, to, you know, not suffocate me, but restrict me so that I would just stop. I was revealed. These were revealed to me. I didn't know I had these traumas. I didn't know I had this experience in my nervous system. And so actually going, recognizing this, and then also it came to, like, recognize that there was a piece of, you know, a young baby that was like, hey, why didn't mom help? And so as an adult, I actually got to look back and be like, oh, mom didn't know. Mom thought this only happened at six months. She didn't know it started at two weeks. So I got to forgive mom. I was like, yeah, you know what? Mom, mom wasn't even aware. She would have stepped in, of course, right? So there I am, you know, as an adult, 30 years old, healing trauma that happened at two weeks old with my mom, who's, you know, still alive today, right? So like the micro to macro of that is just fascinating really to delve into. But uncovering all of that also helped me feel like how there's a false sense of needing to be restricted. 
and allowed me to say, oh, no, I actually need to open up. And so within that, within that process, I started opening up about psychedelic therapy, started to open up about my own experiences and wanting to help others in these ways, right? And so eventually, and you know, I did a class project on it. Then in 2014, I gave my first public speaking where I talked about psychedelic therapies and using it with folks, you know? And so it was cool, but it was from that work that allowed me to like, hey, this constriction that I feel is false. It no longer serves me. And I have to actually do the work to open up and, you know, within that, I'm also culturally aware that it's, you know, a thing for like a, a white man to be like, oh, how can I be bigger in the world? You know, so I, I got I got some edges, you know, and I'm navigating all of it. But it's also like that discovery of being more of who I am more fully, truthfully and honestly. Um, and that absolutely came from discovery in psychedelics. Wow. Yeah, that's that's powerful stuff. So I know we only have a few more minutes uh, with with that behind you what what's in front of you what are you trying to do continue to change that culture of use um you know a lot of it's still policy advocacy my work with the noac society you know we're doing some stuff uh raising money to 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 help policy initiatives in washington or you know here in colorado and um a lot of it you know is kind of using that thread of decriminalizing some drugs as the thread to kind of reveal the contradiction of like wait a second how are we going to keep this, you know, these couple methamphetamines legal and then all oh, these other ones are illegal. It's like, well, that's weird. So we'll get there. But I think that that's where the future goes is to just calling out those contradictions. And it's like, no, we, we let people buy Tylenol and that can kill people. We actually know the, the, the lethal dose, uh, which it'll kill 50% of the population. We know that and it's accurate. It's pretty damn accurate, but it's widely available. So just kind of like busting those contradiction and moving. Yeah, we'll get there. And, and if I'm just a normal person have, well, normal, if I, if I've never done psychedelics before, but I, I'm hearing more about it, I'm interested, where do I go to get information or what's my next step? Oh, I, I, I a big fan, your community, ask folks around you, you know, like if you're older, if you got kiddos or nieces and nephews, ask them. They've probably read about DMT, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're, uh, you know, if you know any teenagers over 15, they have probably heard about some of these things, right? Like you'd be like, oh, what's Calvin Klein? And they're like, oh, that's when kids mix ketamine and cocaine. You know, <laughs> like you're going to get it, right? So it's there in the community or, or, you know, you also like, it's wonderful. I've had, you know, after Michael Pollan's books, uh, had folks coming through my office, I, I had this 80 year old guy come in and he's like, oh, I want to dissolve my ego where do I start? I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's huge. You know? So, but within it, you know, had recognized, Oh, and I still know that I can talk to these people. And, and so it, it was more about like being like, Oh, okay, well let's, let's start there. Talk with your friends, talk with folks who have done this. You said you haven't. So, okay, good. Go talk to your friends who've done psilocybin and feel like they dissolved their ego and find out if it's for you, you know, but like starting there because, uh, we'll be amazed at how frequently people respond with the good information, right? And it is, you know, you're like, oh, I don't know what a benzo is. Somebody like, oh, well, that's Xanax and you shouldn't snort them because you can get addicted. You know, like you just find all this stuff out. But that's where the knowledge is held for sure. Um, so within that, yeah, I was going to offer out sources like bluelight.org, but that one can kind of scare folks because it is. You can actually go into chats about like, how someone is shooting up a combination of research chemicals to experience a very distinct 
side of effect, or, you know, set of effects, right? And so, I mean, it's, it gets real deep and you can kind of be like, oh, wow. But uh, it's also useful to just find out what the community does, you know? So I think, um, I don't know, Arrowhead, uh, Maps, Maps is great, maps.org. They've, they've got archives of the research that goes back. And so you can really see that's, that one's always fascinating because you go in and you're like, well, I hear about these new ketamine treatments. So how long have they been re researching this? And you go in and you find these articles that go way back, found out actually probably about a month and a half ago, I found out that ketamine was one of David Bowie's faves. And it, I, after I, I, I found that out, I was like, wow, his music makes so much more sense. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, oh, that's the digital, digital, you know, anyway. So it just made sense being familiar with the ketamine space, then finding out it was his. So I don't know why I got off on that, but. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm putting together a lot of the pieces of what you said. And one of the things that strikes me is that the knowledge is in the community. And the problem has been that the community has been so tightly guarded for fear of judgment or, criminal conviction that it's been mm -hmm. really, really mm -hmm. close. But in your in your um, message about opening up and what you've been doing, uh, it, it strikes me that a lot more often I find myself in conversations with other adults and my parents and uh, people excitedly talking about these things in a way that isn't taboo, that is is very much um, I want to share this amazing thing with you because it was really powerful and important to me. And through that type of openness, people don't have to dig as deep or go as far or go to the extremities of the Internet and Arrowhead to find, you know, those people that have been out in the in the cosmos long enough to be writing these detailed reports. There are there are people within your first degree, second degree that have had these experiences. And if we are those people being open about it is the first step to normalizing it, to uh, doing it with people that we care about. I'll never forget the time that my wife and I uh, ate mushrooms with my parents in uh, Maine at like a family cabin that has been like generations of our family have grown up there. And it was just like this most amazing day, but it could only happen because we had broke down that wall. We'd been talking about these things for, you know, months and years prior. So, yeah, I think um, that's, that's a good takeaway that for people that are familiar, that do have these experiences and that it is important to, to try to transition out of that place that this is something bad or that we did, you know, in a, yeah. in a negative place and just be open about it, share it. Cause those, those are the guides that can help the next, you know, wave of people, uh, step into, into a normal culture of use. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan too, of like talking to your doctor, you know, they, they, they always throw it up there on the, the TV advertising the new mad, you know, you should talk to your doctor about this. Well, you should talk to your doctor about ayahuasca. And you can absolutely ask your doctor if you're healthy enough to take it. Now, they may have all sorts of views on things or this or that. I think there's some red flags that might show up if they're like, well, that sounds like a drug of addiction. You can be like, ah, bullshit. Nobody's going to addicted to ayahuasca. Walk on that doctor. I'd go to get another primary care. But yeah, I, I think that that's an important piece is just like being open to ask. You know, and, 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 and it also like when the when the doctors are met with those questions of like, oh, doc, am I safe enough to do ayahuasca? And they go, I who, what, you know, like, oh, well, now the onus is on them that they have to educate themselves, right? And they've got to do the work, right? Like uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN is like one of my faves on the cannabis piece, right? Like for a long time, he's like, oh, 
dangerous and blah, 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 blah. But then one day he was like, the light bulb went off and he was like, wait a second, I actually need to look for the science on this, you know? And so he went and pursued it and yeah, blew open his doors. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I was off. Yeah, you probably shouldn't smoke it because there may be carcinogens in that, but we don't know. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I know that you have uh, other stuff lined up and I know that we'll be um, seeing more of each other in the future, but this was great. I appreciate your time so much. Um, and yeah, if you, if you want to get back on the line at a future date, I'm always, always down to talk about these types of things. And I think your experience and wisdom uh, clearly shines. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, on that note, I think you would, you would have a good time speaking with my partner, uh, Shannon. Um, she's a professor over at CSU, tenure professor. Um, but yeah, her, her work has been on critical psychopharmacology. But yeah, she's my partner. We do a lot of work together on the NOAC Society, as well as a lot of the advocacy stuff with Right to Try and um, yeah, all the things. Awesome. So. I would love a connection if you'd uh, be yeah, willing to yeah, make yeah. one. Super cool. All right, Rob. Oh, cool, right? Nice talking with you. Yeah, have a nice good rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that it stretched your brain a bit. I know it did mine. So it's funny, as soon as I posted this episode, I got a lot of feedback from friends and listeners. Some were enthusiastically embracing this level of open discussion around a very difficult topic, while others were downright challenged by it and had devil's advocate lines of questioning not so much denying the rights of adults to determine what we put in our bodies, but questioning whether more openness and acceptance of potentially life-altering substances like heroin is really what we want to be making mainstream. And I have to say, I came into this conversation with an agenda of my own, which was to advance the position that psychedelics may have a large potential benefit if responsibly integrated into our culture. So I was surprised but excited that Dr. Rob's view cut even deeper, past that quantification of good drug, bad drug, to a fundamental questioning of our thinking about drugs in the widest sense. It's not as clear cut, and we have work to do as a culture and community to better understand and integrate these substances in ways that keep our society healthy. So good news, I will be posting a part two with Dr. Rob Colbert so I can pitch him some of these new questions that arose from the first talk and go even deeper down the rabbit hole. So if this episode grabbed your attention, be sure to tune into that follow-up. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the work of Dr. Rob Colbert and his colleagues, you can head over to the NOACsociety.org and even donate to support their work in the Right to Try Psilocybin Advocacy Fund, Consciousness Raising Education and Peer Support, and other ongoing initiatives. That's a great way to tap into the movement and make your mark. If you are enjoying the Uncomplication podcast, please help spread it. Tell your friends, leave a five-star review on your preferred podcasting platform, and remember, Uncomplication is a state of mind. We are all right where we need to be. Cheers. Ah, human music. I like it.